Hey, kids, want to learn some swear words? If so, keep listening. Maybe you'll get some on this episode of Unorthodox. Don't tell your parents. This is a pre-show obscenity warning. Or is it a pre-show obscenity promise? <laughs> creepiest that creepy enough? you've ever been. <laughs> Hello, Jews. This is Unorthodox, the weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Good morning. And you are, you're, what, you're not here. I don't I'm see not, you. Where are you? I am um, in Colorado. The sun just rose. It's a beautiful day. I'm on vacation with the Cohen. Nice. Yeah. And uh, Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Zdravstvojček, tovarish. Vas? I'm getting ready for the new administration. For the new era? Oh, yeah. You're, you're I, learning I Russian. One, I, for one, welcome our Kremlin overlords. <laughs> Listen, these are people who uh, start drinking vodka at 10 in the morning, uh, think the entire world is out to get them, and are committed to being perpetually unhappy. Basically, that's my family. So I'm really ready you know for, well. for this administration. Does your family also have an economy the size of Italy's? Uh, you know, they used to. <laughs> they used to. And just like Russia, they fucked it all up. <laughs> our, we have two two Jews this week. Uh, our Jewish guests are Rosie Gray, political reporter Rosie Gray, who's been with us before and uh, now writes for The Atlantic magazine. And she's going to talk about uh, the upcoming inauguration. Also uh, on this inaugural mini special, Charlie Brotman. He's this Washington legend. He's been the inaugural parade announcer at every parade since Dwight David Eisenhower. I'm so excited that we have him just to like hear his voice. Yeah, no, it's it's. Are you also having him on, Mark? Because like you want to get into the announcer business. Well, doesn't ever? Did you know that about me? That well, not that I want to be an announcer, but that my secret fantasy life is that I would have been a disc jockey. I thought radio. I always thought that that radio was. And here you are. Here I am, <laughs> living the dream. Um. So listen, let's catch up with each other because we haven't seen each other for a week. And that's always a sad thing. I want to talk about my visit to JOFA, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance. These women and men, but but predominantly women, um, invited me to be to moderate a panel and their at their conference last Sunday. And it was amazing. So the panel I was invited to moderate was about um, issues about conversion, the way that some of the, um, you know, Israeli uh, r- rabbis are not honoring Orthodox American conversions. But it was basically like a thousand Orthodox women, probably 75% women, 25% men, talking about ways to bring feminism into orthodoxy, ways that they've already brought feminism into orthodoxy. I don't know. First of all, they were just like a more intellectual, bookish, thoughtful crowd you'll never meet. I mean, it's... it's Really, Jews? That's very shocking. But I mean, just the conversation, you know, you'd walk down the hall and it would be everything from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on TV to, you know, which which tractate is, you know, Bava Kama or... Some in Hebrew. I heard some Yiddish spoken. I heard some Russian. I heard English. Everything from really modern Orthodox women to Haredi and Yeshivish women. It was just kind of mind blowing. Um, the intensity there, and um, and I really was honored to be invited. It did raise for me the question because my I almost brought Rebecca, my ten year old, but she ended up going snow tubing with some of her friends, and it did kind of raise the question for me. Like I admired these people so much for the spiritual and intellectual work they were doing. And yet I thought to myself, but like, how would I feel if one of my kids became Orthodox? Leo, would you be cool with that? I, I would be thrilled with that. I think you, you would, would be devastated. No. Well, it depends what kind, right? Th- they'll, be, they'll be like, you know, <laughs> and Oppenheim well, making a firm like, commitment to this. You think I'd be devastated? Yeah. I think it'd be supremely uncomfortable. Have I not made a firm commitment to this, uh, this Jewish thing? I don't know. You're kind of wishy-washy on the Jewish thing. I mean, you've made a firm commitment to sort of like flighty... Butterfly flutter wingy <laughs> Judaism Look, that's I have curious. To say, 
I have to say, if if one of your kids was like a Jofa, like that's sort of to me a different stream. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. If my daughter were keynoting an address at this conference 20 years from now, that'd be fine. These are the last people in the world you'd accuse of having turned their brains off. I just want my kids to be happy, obviously. That is what I want too, actually. And I think think that, you know, if it comes – and and I don't see, you know, orthodoxy as necessarily – even it's more stringent forms as necessarily having turned your brain off. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it is uh, of it as making having made a, a firm commitment uh, and, and doing a lot of very difficult spiritual, if not necessarily uh, always sort of intellectual in the Western traditional sense kind of work. Uh, I'll, I'll be thrilled. Stephanie, could you could maybe you they'll have, even move to a settlement? Could, what, Stephanie, okay, could if you that became orthodox? I'd be fine with it. <laughs> Look, I, the other thing is, like, I think it's pretty easy even for us to like rag on the idea of like orthodox sort of like who was we weren't ragging i don't think any of the three of us was ragging. right not right now you just said turn your brain off no no no. what i said is these are the last people i was defending them against the charge some secular folk have i'm saying that that like we like we it's easy to like make fun as as sort of like mainstream secularish jews on the show we've sort of like poked fun a little bit um but actually i think we all sort of right there is like this real depth and richness of like this idea of committing so much to something I completely agree. I'm, I'm a little surprised that you guys think that I'm in any way anti-Orthodox. Like I've, I don't think you are. Thank no, you. I don't think you are either. I just think you're you're assiduously uh, – how, how would I put it? Assiduously non-Orthodox? Well, I for myself don't have the um, the discipline or the temperament to do anything all the way. That's that's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. Whereas, precisely what whereas I'm saying. Liel does. Right. I, and don't, I, have, I don't have the attention. <laughs> and, like, I'm sorry. I can't use my phone for it. 24 hours. What? Right. Here's a question for you. What would have set you more? A daughter marrying a non-Jew and completely leaving the fault, no interest, not raising the kids Jewish, 100% disconnected, or a daughter becoming, say, Lubavitch and, and going full in? Definitely the former. Definitely the former. Definitely having a child who had just was completely uninterested in Judaism because... Because, I mean, I think what we want to keep having with our kids as they grow older and decide that we're lame and uncool and we become just these annoyances, right, is we want to continue to have a connection with them, right? And we want to still feel like we're in conversation with them. And I feel that way with my parents and I'm, you know, really grateful for that. I feel like a kid who just for whom Judaism was just this weird thing that like my parents kind of did when I was growing up, but like the sooner I could get rid of it, the better, or just total indifference, there'd be this chasm where the conversation would just kind of disconnect and that that would be – that would be hard. Stephanie, what's your answer to that question? To whether my Would you rather have your future little um Butnik Cohen's Would you rather Cat Stevens completely disavowed his Judaism or oh, became Cat Orthodox? Stevens, if Cat Stevens is following on the true Cat Stevens trajectory, he <laughs> He's yes, Muslim? does leave. He does leave the fold. <laughs> This is why I'm going to play the young person card. I actually don't consider these things very seriously. Like I they, they don't have any like uh I have a very little frame of reference for this kind of thing. Um, That's astonishing know. to me. You were, and I've noticed this before, Stephanie, that you're someone who's exceptionally good with children. Like you, either has yeah, almost never that. been anyone better with my children than you. You are such a natural mother, and yet when we've talked about things like future parenting, you're like, I've never even thought about that, which is strange. You know what? I'm just like not that thoughtful of a person. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's up with you guys? Enough about me and my Jofa conference. What's up with you guys? I am, like I said earlier, I'm in Colorado with the Coens. I'm having a great time. I haven't skied in about like a decade, but it turns out I'm very good at it. (laughs) No doubt. Um, So I did it for two days. Well, you know, I spent the first, like the the whole plane ride being like, 
ooh, I don't know if I'm going to ski. I'm very scared. I don't know if I can do it. And then I got on the ski slope, and I was like, oh, damn. She good. Um, so I skied for two days, and now I'm in a lot of physical pain. Oh, it's so the best soreness, though. The post-skiing soreness is so yeah. good. Liel, what's up with you? you uh, we don't ski. You don't ski. No, my people are desert <laughs> dwellers. Because I see you as like a hella skier, you know, like the people who jump out of the plains. You know, that I would completely 100% do. But just to kind of lift the thing, that's boring. When I heard you say hella skier, I was thinking the Northern California. Yeah, like, hella, hella skier. skier. She's not just a skier. She's a hella skier. <laughs> um, let's take this chance to welcome some new subscribers to our podcast. Uh, it's the law firm of Roxanne Glassenberg, the cat girl from our Boston show. Remember the girl in the cat? Absolutely. Um, they've given her, her they, she's Glad the, she identified herself. Yeah. She's she's uh, getting the, the newsletter now. Um, Jessica Torch, Linda McGeed, Avi Stein, Panina Feldman, whom I saw at the Jova conference. Thanks for saying hi. Ellie Ryder, Gary Gans, Michael Lamodi, and Alyssa Reiner's mom. Hey, Alyssa Reiner's mom. Um, if you want to be a subscriber to uh, the newsletter, which is now written by our own Leah Leibowitz, uh, send an email asking for it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And then, so you never miss an episode of the podcast, Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your fine free podcast. I'd like to take one quick second to go back to our new subscriber, Jessica Torch. Oh, I know about Jessica Torch. I know about her. Yeah. Leah, what do you know about Jessica Torch? Oh, I, I know about Jessica. So Jessica Torch was an unsuspecting college student uh, who one, one Hanukkah uh, was at a laboratory at Columbia University when, when a menorah – uh, a radioactive <laughs> menorah accidentally <laughs> fell on her, uh, caused a huge accident, and making her into Jessica Torch, the Jewish <laughs> superheroine, uh, who burns for eight nights <laughs> whenever you need her to. Wait, this is embarrassing because my version of Jessica Torch is also a Jewish superhero. But she, her torchness is based on the like the light above the ark. Ooh, the Nair Tamid. To be on, yes, and she needs that light to be on to like to to. to it's the source of her strength. <laughs> You know what? I had something so much lamer than that. We're just going to stop there with Jessica Tor- <laughs> superhero Jessica Torch. Here's my only question: what's her what's her daily persona when she's not Jessica Torch? Is she she's Jessica Goldfarb? Oh, she's a, she's a chazan at a shul. <laughs> she's a chazan at, at no, a reform like, shul in, in Murray yeah. Hill. Okay, there we go. A news reporter for the local Jewish paper. <laughs> <laughs> the she can exponent. Keep an eye on like what's going on in the community, so she knows who to save. She reports on local simchas. <laughs> yes, yes. I hope she saves us. Like I hope I hope she. We were on her list of people who probably need help. Jessica Torch, we are, we, we're, you know, we're lucky to have your light. <laughs> Saving us from darkness. Um, news the light of, the, of our lives. Yes, yeah, she, is, she is. News of the Jews. We've got some fun stuff this week. Um, so this was a late addition to News of the Jews. This is from ynetnews.com. Nazi descendants sing Hatikva to Holocaust survivors. There's a headline. Okay, from the article. There's a trip for young Germans called the March of Life where descendants of Nazis meet with Holocaust survivors to bear witness to their grandma and grandpa's crimes. On a recent trip to Netanya, the young Germans even presented a Hasidic dance to the survivors and sang a modern version of Israel's national anthem, Hatikva, which included a rap segment in German. They then handed out <laughs> flowers to the survivors. <laughs> what? They, they... Yeah, Shlomo, I'm very sorry about everything grandpa did and now to make it up to you i know how much you like the rap music She's like i think germany is or there are these amazing things going on where they are so obsessed with not forgetting no, they grapple yeah they grapple all the time and it's like can you imagine being you don't you, you have no control who your grandparents you know like what that what happens but you you still it sounds like they are born with this weight I completely agree. I do have to say that rapping at elderly Jews in German might not oh, yeah. be what they need. Right. <laughs> um, 
According to Market Watch, convicted Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff, Man- Madoff? Madoff, 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 yeah. sorry, uh, monopolized the hot chocolate market in his North Carolina prison. According to journalist Steve Fishman, who has stayed in touch with uh, with Madoff, the convict is idolized behind bars for his business acumen. Quote. Bernie really was a successful businessman with quite original insights into the market, and he's continued applying his business instincts in prison, Fishman said. At one point, he cornered the hot chocolate market. He bought up every package of Swiss Miss from the commissary and sold it for a profit in the prison yard. He monopolized hot chocolate. He made it so that if you wanted any, you had to go through Bernie. That is insane. And so it's not cigarettes anymore. It's hot chocolate. Swiss Miss. I don't actually care about this, but – I want to see this spinoff on like Orange is the New Black, where there is someone, you know, because they had a sort of a like a, a Paula Dean type person come into the prison last time. Wasn't it a Martha Stewart type person? It was a Martha Stewart, but she, I don't know, she was kind of racist. She, so she I, was like a I, mashup. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had, she had a little Paula, she had a little Dean in her. A little Dean in her. According to the Daily Mail, in England, an Amazon employee has been sacked for leaving a note for a Jewish customer, which read, greetings from Uncle Adolf. The worker left the anti-Semitic note inside a parcel, which contained a toy that the woman had ordered for her niece. Um, it's believed that the culprit, the Amazon, the Amazonian, uh, guessed that the employee was Jewish because of the surname. The Amazonian was correct. It was a Jewish customer. Uh, the employee has been sacked and police are investigating the incident as a hate crime. Can I tell you why this is so terrifying? Uh, because it's it's not the anti-Semitic thing at all. That I could totally live with. It's that feeling that I think we all have that the people packing up our orders are silently judging, <laughs> judging us, us. <laughs> for the shit that we buy. And by the way, one way to actually fix like rampant consumer society is not just to allow but encourage Amazon employees to put like <laughs> horrible notes, like shaming you. <laughs> it's like, right. you do not need this. Signed, Uncle Adolf. <laughs> like Uncle Adolf is actually just like our moral compass. That's exactly right. <laughs> My favorite part of this article, though, it says Adolf presumably referred to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> the kids these like, days. Actually, not, yes, thank you for Not Adolf Green, who wrote and composed On the Town, the musical, <laughs> but Adolf Hitler. Not Adolf Ox, the uh, publisher of the New York Times, but, but, Adolf, Hitler, but Adolf Hitler, right. Um, and then finally, this gem, according to uh, IsraeliNationalNews.com. Very good. Um, the official Palestinian Authority television news network has accused Jews of orchestrating the mugging of socialite and reality TV star. She's not really a socialite. I don't know. She's a businesswoman. Of, like, of, of not, not laughing. That is no joke. International financier and businesswoman Kim Kardashian yeah. in France last October. And the PA has used the high profile theft to accuse Jews of generally being Thieves. Now, as we know, uh, Kardashian was held up at gunpoint in Paris. The thieves plundered her apartment. They stole millions. I always figured this was some sort of great hoax, but I guess not. I guess this was not a this was not a sex tape. This was for realsies. Um, again, I'm reading from the IsraeliNationalNews.com article. While the incident would at first glance appear to be an odd platform for spreading anti-Semitic tropes, a special report on Palestine this morning portrayed the mugging as an example of what it described as rampant criminal behavior by Jews. Now, this is based on the fact that two of the 17 individuals involved in the crime, it seems, uh, were Jewish, including Kardashian's driver and her driver's brother, who may have tipped off the criminals. Um, however, the suspected thieves are not Jewish. Um, they're Muslim immigrants from Algeria. But somehow it's this is all an example of of Jewish criminality. Look, I, here's what I'm going to say on behalf of Jews. We would never hurt Kim Kardashian. <laughs> 
Like, no way. Palestine This Morning must be the greatest morning show in the history of TV. <laughs> and now in entertainment news, the Jews rob Kim Kardashian. In sports, the Jews steal the World Cup. And in recipes, here are some uh, Here's what to do cakes. with some blood, right? Upcoming live shows, The Biggie, January 25th. Uh, next week, we will be at the Jewish Community Center of Manhattan. We've added a guest. Not only will we be with podcast legend Jonathan Goldstein, the host of Heavyweight, and Gentile of the Week, Ross Douthit from the New York Times. But Who's like a real Gentile. Who's like, yeah, like hardcore. A, a hardcore, yeah. conservative Catholic. And we've added Jen Spira, who writes for uh, The Colbert Show uh, on Late Night and used to write for The Onion. So this is going to be amazing. The Jubador will be there with a three-piece band. To register, go to jccmanhattan.org slash calendar. Uh, there will be thrills. There will be drinks. Yeah. There will be insults. It's going to be really fun. Guys, if you bring shrooms, we'll drop them. If you bring nips, we'll drink them. Uh, we'll give hugs. And if you go to our uh, Facebook page, you can find a, a whole page about it there. February 10th, we'll be at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach. Uh, and if you want to book us for a live show, contact Alyssa at egoldstein at tabletmag.com. Uh, remember to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And hang with us on Facebook. We always post something about the show there. Our first Jew of the week is journalist Rosie Gray, who recently left BuzzFeed to become a political reporter for The Atlantic. She's very big on Twitter. I'm just going to say that up front, she's at Rosie Gray. She's also, I think, our first ever returning guest. Is that true? I, th- I mean, we've had tablet colleagues who've been on more than once, um, like Esther and like Marjorie Ingle. I don't think we've ever had a non tabletier We've back. never loved anyone enough to ask them back. <laughs> Here we are. Flattered, guys. I mean, now we've broken the seal. We'll be recycling guests all the time now, but it never occurred to us to, to do no, it. Just Rosie. To, just Rosie? It's just Rosie. Cool. Should we, should we just make her an unpaid regular? I think so. I think you would love that. <laughs> so, Rosie, I gotta, I gotta ask. Um, when the president calls your former employer, BuzzFeed, a failing pile of garbage and is pretty quick to deride stories he doesn't like as uh, fake news, how do you go about your just like daily job as a reporter? You just kind of do. Political reporters uh, always slash often have an adversarial relationship with the people they cover. Um, in this case, it's, you know, the incoming president of the United States. He obviously doesn't have very much respect for the press corps, but like we all just have to sort of keep doing our jobs and like insults are just insults. Yeah, but hold on. I I, I, I kind of want to take this from from a different like emotional standpoint. So I, I'm, I'm thinking about what you must feel like, right? Uh, which I do from time to time. Uh, <laughs> you take a rosy you're young, moment. Y- you work super hard. You're super talented. You get to that point where you're like at the pinnacle of of this profession, which you know people. Okay, have been well, doing... let's not get carried away. No, no, it's. I think it's true, right? <laughs> and then, and then, at at the moment of your ascendance, you enter a press corps into which Sean Spicer, the incoming White House, you know, spokesperson, said, "You know what? We're." pretty much just going to uh, blow this thing wide open. And uh, in, in addition to regular journalists, we're also going to allow, you know, talk show hosts and bloggers and people living in their parents' basement and pretty much anyone we like. Doesn't that kind of devalue the whole enterprise? Isn't it kind of like, you know, being the first violinist in the Philharmonic and all of a sudden, like, any street musician could just walk in and play? Well, I, I you know, I support anyone and everyone who considers themselves a journalist to be, you know, to have access to the White House. So, like, I think that's a good thing. I think what's not a good thing is how they're talking about, like, moving the press briefing out of the White House. Like, basically, they're trying to limit access uh, to the actual physical White House as much as possible. And I think those are really, like, troubling signs about what it's going to be like. Um, 
obviously like they are they don't have that much you know there's a certain sort of like pop and circumstance that goes along with you know like the white house press corps and like the briefing room and like the whole thing they don't i don't think they the trump people have that much interest in in like preserving that um so they're going to do i mean there's going to be a lot of changes coming i think that there is a way in which it could be sort of freeing for the reporters but um right now it's just sort of like an uncertain thing right and and that that doesn't that isn't terrifying because I mean, it used to be order, right? There used to be a way things were done, and you always knew where you stood. And all of a sudden, everything is kind of blown open. Isn't that sort of like, you know? You, know, you guys should really read. Um, Jack Schaefer actually had a great column, I think it was yesterday, in Politico magazine. And his argument was, like, this is like a, actually a really liberating thing for Washington journalists. Because, you know, Trump's not following the rules. Trump's not doing things the way that, you know, we've always been used to. Um, and the time is now to like really take this opportunity to for us to do things differently and for us to and I mean his White House will probably leak like a sieve, right? I mean it could be good times. Well, and, for and all the agencies right? and there's it's going to be a very leaky town. Yeah, the, um, it'll be showered. Oh God, by <laughs> golden droplets of information. <laughs> so Rosie, um, do you worry that that things get really? I mean that that there's half the country that actually doesn't believe anything they don't want to believe? And is that new? I mean, have we gone to a new place in terms of disrespect for um, for for news? You know, this is something I think about a lot. I, you know, I, I think that we have reached almost like a crisis point in terms of like public trust in the media. You know, having covered the campaign and having gone to a lot of Trump rallies, the visceral distrust and like loathing that we felt from a lot of the people there, I had never experienced anything like it before. Um, and, and that, that did actually feel kind of new to me in terms of the fake news stuff. I mean, first of all, that term needs to die. It's been turned from something that actually describes something real into like a weapon that like, you know, partisans are using against you to describe a story that like they don't like, or they didn't want out. That's all part of this kind of phenomenon where there's more sort of sources of various credibility than ever before. And you can kind of like choose what to believe. The gatekeeping on the part of the legacy media is just like not as important anymore, which, which is, you know, possibly sort of a good thing. But also it means that like, I think people just don't really know what to believe. So they just sort of choose whatever to believe. Here's something that's puzzled me. There's all this talk uh, among the people who who mistrust the mainstream media, and this is on the far right and the far left uh, and various places in between, um, that, 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 that we in the media are elitist and that the Washington chattering classes and Obama and the elitist, elitist, elitist. Franklin Roosevelt wore a cape. He wore a cape <laughs> and he had a cigarette holder. He essentially – was in drag as a European aristocrat. He was a count from was American aristocracy. He was American aristocracy, as was Kennedy, a slightly newer vintage aristocracy. But these are people who came from insane a amounts of money. Slightly more anti-Semitic version of the same thing. Yeah, Jack Kennedy, Joseph Kennedy. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I mean, these people were like. There was a time when Americans actually happily voted for people who were richer, who were Harvard-educated, rich people whose families had been who had whose families had owned or employed their families as fry cooks or slaves. Right, the, the good old days. For, right. So, but here's my question: Back then, you know, you could build a New Deal coalition out of working people who'd vote for a man in, in, a, in a cape. What what changed? Did did and I'm not saying those were the good old days. I'm just saying it didn't used to matter. Now they're voting for a man with a golden toilet. The the presumption used to be that. A certain amount of the political class was elite. What do you? Why does that? Why could you not wear your cape and your in uh, your cigarette holder anymore? What's changed in America? Why can you not wear your cape and have it too? Yeah, or eat it too. <laughs> I mean, a couple things. Like, look, like there's always been a strain, like a sort of populist strain in American politics that goes back a long time, and that's not that is that aspect of Trumpism is not new. Um, 
in terms of Trump himself, I mean, I would argue that, you know, I don't think he pretends actually to be like a sort of like, you know, working class guy himself. I mean, he 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 does say stuff like, oh, like, you know, I knew all the blue collar guys. In the I grew up and, on the construction. Site. Yeah, yeah, that whole thing. But I also think that, you know, part of why his brand is so strong is because it's this sort of vision of like the American dream and like what like the pinnacle of success in America is. So I do think that, you know, he has managed to do something that nobody else has, which is combine the fact that he is like definitely an elite and proudly so in a way, right, with this sort of like anti-Washington, anti-establishment fervor that has, you know, taken over the right. So let me let me kind of I want to get back to to your emotional life. Oh, God. You've spent you've spent <laughs> like a really tough year, right? Following this roller coaster around, going to these rallies, you know, everything is new, everything is weird. It's like Trumplandia and you're writing these amazing reports from like these wacky, wacky situations. And I I, I have to imagine there was a part of you that says it's going to be November. It's going to end, right? Hillary Clinton's going to win. It's going to be normal. I'm going to be a political reporter in Washington, D.C., and it's just going to be back to kind of like routine. And and now there's no routine. Like, where, where do you find like emotional reserves to like pivot from that to whatever it is that comes next? I It, it, it caused a sort of like rethinking of like what what the sort of project was that we all were sort of engaged in now, right? Because we were dealing with a really unprecedented political situation. It did sort of change my my thinking in terms of like what I definitely wanted to like focus on and cover in the next year. And um, and then, you know, emotionally, I don't know. I mean, I, when huge, huge, huge news happens like that, you know, it, it makes you feel really alive in whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. So it's been there's been a sort of an aspect of that as well. I mean, it, it definitely was not easy to be on the receiving end of um, of like some of the vitriol. I didn't have it as bad as some of the other report, like the TV embeds and stuff who did like every single Trump rally for a year and a half. I mean, they had a tough time. Um, and so they're sort of like the real heroes of the situation. <laughs> Things got kind of nuts. I mean, the term Lugenpresse from the Nazi era was being bandied about. It's I got a li- video of lying press, lying right. press. Yeah. Right. Um, and that became a thing over the course of the campaign. So, like, things did start sort of so, getting insane. So how much anti-Semitism is there in the Trump administration? And I'm talking Donald Trump and I'm talking Bannon and any other assorted appointments. I don't know what's in anybody's heart. I don't know, like, who is necessarily an anti-Semite unless they've done something anti-Semitic. Um, in terms of... There have been obviously like troubling incidents that have happened where Donald Trump has been like slow to disavow white nationalists. There was like the sheriff star thing. So, you know, there have been troubling things, but like I would not uh, at this point call Donald Trump or or, you know, his his senior staff anti-Semites. Do you think anti-Semitism is on the rise or are we just reading more Facebook reports of the kind of hate crimes, swastikas, graffiti that went on that, that do go on year round anyway? You know, it's really tough to say. I mean, like, obviously, anti-Semitism has existed forever, right? So it's not um, in terms of it being on the rise. You know, I do think that, like, we we are living in this, like, bizarre political culture where people there's the, you know, the huge backlash to so-called political correctness has led to, like, an outbreak of plus social media has led to this, like, outbreak of, like, horrible trolls who will just say whatever they want. But those people probably believed these things prior to this and just didn't have as effective a way of like telling you that they believe it. So in terms of, and you know, obviously look like again, like 
other people get this worse than me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've noticed an obvious uptick in like anti-Semitic content in my you know Twitter mentions over the last year and a half. Like, I think a lot of people have. We've noticed too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rosie, you live in D.C. What are you going to be doing um, during the inauguration and inauguration weekend? Uh, I'm actually not sure exactly what I'm going to be doing um, for the inauguration itself. The night before, I'm trying to get into the Deplorable, which is the um, like the alt rights party. <laughs> so, but they won't they won't give me a press credential. So I'm having to go through. I shouldn't even be like saying this out loud because this is a, these are like things they, I'm trying to do like behind the scenes. But they, uh, you know, they, they're they're going to have this big party with like Mike Cernovich and you know Milo and stuff. So. Sounds, sounds like Good a luck with that. <laughs> Rosie Gray, thanks so much for joining us. We will be reading you at theatlantic.com and in and, and the print magazine, which I get. Cool. So, well, thank you guys so much for having me. You know, and, and we'll be following you at Rosie Gray on Twitter, where we will send you some anti-Semitic comments. Just, <laughs> thanks, but guys. ours will be ironic and filled <laughs> with love. Great. Looking forward. With Rosie, you're all right. You wear my ring when you hold me tight. Rosie, that's my thing. When you turn out the light, I got to hand it to me. Looks like it's me and you again tonight, Rosie. All right, the mailbox. Really good mail this week. I want to read the first one, okay? Can I read the first one? Okay. All right. Dear unorthodox peeps, as a gay, biracial Jewish person, mother Jewish, father black, I have to say I feel so lucky to have found your podcast. I find it to be highly entertaining, informative, and educational, and it makes me happy to be Jewish. All my life, I am 53. I have tended to feel more of the pain of all that I am, without much of the joy or community, as it takes me three villages, and all the villages end up hating each other at some point. I usually find the in-between people in places more supportive, and I'm happy to have found your place. Yours, Blaine Bragg. Blaine? Our gay, biracial Jewish friend. If there ever were in-between people. <laughs> we are so in-between. And we, 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 we ride in-between cars on the subway. We are as in-between as it gets. You, we're not that risk like daredevilish, though. We're committed to nothing. <laughs> you love us. We love you. We, we need you as much as you need us. Thank you for the letter. Dear O.C., unorthodox crew. I think that'd be UC, but Gary wrote OC. I listened to your podcast of January 12th today. Uh, Mohalim, Moyles, indeed must have <laughs> indeed must have certification. Each major Jewish branch has different levels of training requirements, but all require learning the halakha of the Brit, as well as medical training, sort of like a shachet, a ritual slaughter. And mastering fruit ninja on your iPhone. <laughs> These days, uh, many OBs and pediatricians have the medical skill, and many Jewish boys are going without the halakhic elements. So you're saying that basically people are ignoring the, the training that they should be getting, Gary. But thank you for writing in to clear that up on, on circumcision. Um, and dear Mark, Liel, and Stephanie, I've been listening to Unorthodox since the summer after my sister Hannah continuously pestered me about it. I owe her great debt because your podcast has given me plenty of laughs and sparked insightful discussion. I'm considering becoming more religious, and Liel in particular has given me a lot to think about over the past few months. Inshallah. Inshallah. Um, As they say in the yeshiva. Uh, this is from Sarah Rosenberg. Sarah, uh, Liel actually will do he – will, he will sit on your bait din. If, well, you're already Jewish. He will, he will, up, he will coach you. In down the road towards further the level up, he yeah. does he he does private coaching. <clears throat> Sarah goes on. The reason I'm writing is because of your most recent discussion of Casablanca. Um, I saw La La Land recently. For any of you who haven't seen it, the end is a clear homage to Casablanca, and this is where you guys come in. 
specifically Liel and Stephanie. Sorry, Mark. You're really missing out. I agree yeah. wholeheartedly with Liel. First museums, now black and white movies. What a tragedy. I will donate $36 to Unorthodox. If you publicly shame my sister on air for her refusal to watch black and white movies and the fact that she's never seen Casablanca. After telling my dad my plan, he agreed to match my donation. <laughs> you're, you're bribing us to shame your sister. <laughs> if the money isn't enough to convince you, please consider my endless gratitude and the opportunity to prove my sister wrong. Sincerely, Sarah Rosenberg, Fairfield, Connecticut. OK, the money is totally enough to convince <laughs> us. But just you, in case, uh, Hannah, what's what's wrong with what you? What the hell, Hannah? Even Girl. Mark, yeah. Even Mark, I tell you what, believes Hannah, you're absolutely wrong. Hannah, you and your boyfriend Bryce. I don't think Bryce is a Jew, by the way. You and Bryce and I will all watch Castle. That was like the judgiest thing I've ever heard you say. Yeah, no, we're judging Hannah. Is this not clear? I, Hannah, we are judging everything you. about Hannah's being. And judged. you know what, Hannah? We will we will host a viewing party for you and your family <laughs> to watch Casablanca. Where are we doing that, Leo? That's how much we we love you. We're going up to Fairfield. You give us. Twice, twice thirty six dollars, and, <laughs> and we will find a way to get together. We, that, look, we will act out Casablanca. I live thirty you. miles from Fairfield. I will come watch Casablanca with you. How there about you, that? There, there you, you go. go. There that you go. So funny. And I don't care what religion Bryce is. I you just will think not pay for a ticket, but you will totally. <laughs> watch you see Casablanca. what I did there? I just got myself a free show of Casablanca, <laughs> uh, and probably like a meal, like at least some popcorn. Yeah, I want some food. I'm a vegetarian, but I'm flexible. If you're cooking, I'm, if it's free and you're cooking, I'm flexible. Mark, I also have to say this letter was a request to shame. Uh, Sarah's sister, but also shamed you somehow. It did. Oh, it was the double shaming. So Hannah, Mark, you're both very wrong. Please watch that movie together. Big dummies. I want Sarah there. I want Bryce there. I want Sarah's boyfriend. I want the dog. I want like I want a little the whole the whole mishpoch. The whole mishpoch. All right, dear unorthodox. There's something Liel said in the last episode that I wanted to spend some time on. (laughs) That's such a Jewish way to. It's like I've got we've got to talk. I'm not going to tell you what about yet, but we're going to spend some time on this. There's something that's bothered me for a while. People often say, but this is seriously. This is probably the greatest letter we've ever. This is this is drop everything, people. People often say, quote. If your mother's vagina is Jewish, then you are, unquote. But shouldn't it be the uterus? What about children born by C-section? This has to have been a thing that the rabbis have written about extensively. No? Joyce Ketterer. Joyce Ketterer, you are a a halachic genius. You are a shiny glide of our people. This is exactly, you know, this is why we win all those Nobel Prizes. (laughs) It's thinking like this. Amazing. Definitely, she's definitely right, and I think we should have someone who's like an expert on this stuff. Yeah, right. could someone one of at least our... knows more than we do? Is this an expression about your mother's vagina that that everyone in the Jewish world knows except me? I had never heard that before. You had never spent a lot of time I think thinking I just about heard your mother's Liel vagina. Say it a lot. Liel says, yeah. but I think he just likes to say that word, vagina. Yeah, <laughs> pronounced like China. Um, do you know the poem? It's by Frederick Seidel that has the line about the shiny China vagina. It's about a sculpture, a a a, a more beautiful. And memorable line of poetry has probably not been written the past 50 years. The, the shiny China vagina. Well, Stephanie, a couple of these letters were for you. I have to say I'm very pleased with what we're hearing back on the baby Silverman name front. Um, my sister and Cliff said, that, Cliff said he felt like a celebrity when he was mentioned on the podcast. He's practically a Kardashian. My sister asked why you made fun of his name, though. But um, Did we? I was, like, I was like, I think it's just because Mark's a bully. <laughs> yeah. Um, I made okay. fun of Cliff. Also because his name is Cliff. Cliff, yeah. Come on, he's the best. Okay, a few letters that came in uh, on, the, on, the, on the baby front. Mazel Tov, Butniks, and Silvermans. In honor of the baby's father, Cliff, I think the baby's name should be Sook. T-Z-U-K. It isn't an actual name, or at least not a popular one, but it means Cliff in Hebrew. If you insist on adding a middle name, which most Israelis don't have, I suggest Sook Eitan Silverman. 
Which, by the way, it, you realize is the, is the name of the recent uh, uh, IDF operation in Gaza, Tsuketan. Tsuketan. It's an amazing name. Are you serious? Yeah. It's oh, a, like a just for that hanger? reason, that should be the name. <laughs> Only um, name him after military campaigns. I love that. Um, a defensive edge. What was it? Yeah. Protective, yeah. Shield. Protective okay, shield. Protective shield. So, so Iron Dome. Vito has a question. Why do many American Jews whose babies' names already have Hebrew roots give them completely different Jewish names? For instance, a Michael Joseph being given the name Moshe Yaakov instead of Mikhail Yosef. I complete. I've wondered the same thing. Yeah, I completely. You'll meet from... an American named Hannah, and her Hebrew name will be Shl- Shlomit. And you're <laughs> like, but but you have a Hebrew name. Okay, so I like that. Sook Eitan. Um, we got another uh, letter from Leanne Lieberman, who suggests Satchel Silverman, and is my new favorite person in the entire world. A nice callback to our letter writer Satchel. What was it? Satchel Feldman or Goldfarb? Satchel Thornfield, who hates us. Yeah. Satchel Silverman is an amazing name. It's a classic. Yeah. Stephanie, can I ask you what kind of name? And I assume that your sister has not revealed names yet. Am I right? No, I'm revealing them on air. But what Sorry. kind of name do you see um, Franny and Cliff going for? I do think they want something with a little, like, you know, Hebrew flair. Um, my, I think, I don't know what letters are in the mix in terms of, like, naming after people. I'm just, I'm just, you know, casting a wide net. I could see it with like a, like an Avi or like a uh-huh. Paul. Or a Benjamin Netanyahu Silverman. Yeah, or Baby Bibi. Baby Bibi. Baby Bibi. Baby Bibi. If you have more suggestions about what uh, Stephanie's sister and brother-in-law, Cliff, should name their, their, uh, their work in progress, don't be strangers. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We're joined this week by Charlie Brockman. He is a public address announcer who has announced every United States inauguration parade since Dwight Eisenhower and through Barack Obama. Uh, thanks for joining us, Charlie. Good morning. So uh, Happy to chat with you. Well, the honor is ours. So um, first of all, are you going to be doing are you going to be doing the Trump inaugural parade this year? Uh, not exactly. What has transpired is that uh, about a week ago, I was I had been planning to do my 16th consecutive inaugural parade, but uh, the president-elect Donald Trump and uh, his presidential inaugural committee uh, basically has selected another announcer, and they contacted me, and they said. Uh, uh, Charlie Brockman, you are just absolutely the best. You're you're a Washington institution and a national treasure, and you're going to be the announcer chairman emeritus. <laughs> but we have another announcer that's used that we're using this time. For shame! And I was taken aback. I actually <laughs> devastated how anyone but me could be the announcer. So, I have been the only announcer that the parade has ever had. <laughs> We've been doing it for 60 years. It seemed as though one of the men that uh, works with uh, the president-elect, they selected him because he had done them very... They, they, he was very good for the uh, Trump Group. Is this guy they even? They it, would reward him. Is this guy even an announcer? Saying that you can be the the announcer. Is this guy so even? Does he know what he's doing? Really devastated and down for a day anyway, and then the next day, 
I get a call from the NBC in Washington, Channel 4, and they said, Charlie, if you're not going to be the announcer for them, we'd like for you to be the announcer for us. Oh, good. This is terrific. And so I accepted, and that's what I'm planning to do. We're thrilled to hear this, and you hope that you will take. We hope that you will take this opportunity uh, to to really critique everything about the new guy, right? Because because what are they doing? How dare they? I know. <laughs> <laughs> we are outraged. For I you. was uh, yes, I was disappointed, and after they're saying how wonderful I am, uh, then they put kind of a P.S. to it and said that. Uh, Somebody else will be doing the announcing, or or in Trump language, you're fired. Right. Tell me, how how do you get? How does one get into the announcement business? Oh, that's a good story. Good question. I was a stadium announcer for the Washington Senators Baseball Club in Washington, and uh, I got the job in Orlando, Florida. Of all things, they were having spring training. And uh, I saw and interviewed Calvin Griffith, who was the owner of the team. And he says, uh, Charlie, you look like you're, you're really doing a good job as an announcer. Would you be interested in coming to Washington and being the stadium announcer at Griffith Stadium? And I says, Calvin, if I ever got that job, I would think I died in going to heaven. I mean, that's my hometown. I'm Washington all the way. Well, one thing led to another, and in 1956, I became the stadium announcer and public relations for the baseball team. And then all of a sudden, the Washington Senators are playing the New York Yankees, and uh, who comes out but Dwight D. Eisenhower? He's throwing out the first pitch. And I'm saying, wow, next thing I know, I'm introducing the president to the, the uh, ball players uh, in the locker room. It, and it's really quite an amazing thing. And next thing I know, uh, the season is over. I get a call from the White House. And the woman says, uh, are you Charlie Bratman? Who did you announce the uh, introduced Eisenhower at the ball game. And I says, yes, ma'am. She says, well, he was, must have been really impressed with you because he's asked everybody at the White House to try to locate you to see if you'd be interested in introducing him again. Charlie, what was your favorite inauguration? Is there one of them that stands out in your mind as, as just the best? Well, I got a couple. I, I guess Eisenhower, only because it was the first. So that was really had my adrenaline going. And and the next, uh, John F. Kennedy, instead of having a a two-hour parade, John Kennedy had a four-hour parade. (laughs) And and, and the other that really stands out with me is Ronald Reagan. Uh, In 1981, he had the most expansive and expensive parade uh, of, uh, of of all time, it adds like fifty million dollars into the DC economy, and they did make a mistake. Unfortunately, this is a quote unquote daytime parade. However, 
Ronald Reagan had so many people in his parade, and he had the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, uh, and, and they started late because Ronald Reagan at the luncheon just was shaking too many hands, and because it was such a long parade, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir came across the presidential reviewing stand, but nobody could see them. It was pitch dark. <laughs> they could hear them, but they could not see them. So those, those were my memories. Charlie, you've been amazing. Thanks. I enjoyed the conversation. We As just did, too. we, sir. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much. We'll listen You're to you on welcome. Channel 4. Okay, bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Uh, some Mazel Tovs this week. Stephanie, what you got? Ooh, Jeff Goldblum and his wife, Emily Livingston, who is a an aerial gymnast, <laughs> are expecting their second baby together. And, you know, it's something we have in common. That. You're an aerial gymnast? <laughs> little known fact. <laughs> uh, my Mazel Tov is to my ex-uncle Myron. Um, he is my mother's brother's ex-wife's brother. And... <laughs> My mother's brother's ex-wife, my Aunt Beverly, who was a lovely woman, she's no longer with us, uh, but her brother was, for a time, a sort of quasi-Uncle Myron. And Is she dead, or has she just quit the Oppenheimer thing? She's quit Judaism. No, she's dead. She died. Um, and, uh, but she's, she's mother to my beloved cousins, uh, f- four of them, and uh, but she had a brother, Uncle Myron, who was you know part of the extended mishpocha, and he has turned 80, um, and... Um, you know, he's he, if you if you need a retired ophthalmologist, he's your man. But um, but Mazel Tov to him on his 80th birthday. Uh, I, if anyone else has an Uncle Myron, I feel like everyone has an Uncle Myron story. So just send those in. Yeah, totally. And there are no my. Or is there is there a Myron anywhere under the age of sixty who is not an uncle? Who's so it might be Myron Silverman. Who knows? We're throwing that name into the hat. Um, and um, Leo, what you got? I have a huge, big, loving Mazel Tov to crazy ex girlfriend. One of the greatest shows on television, uh, and and Rachel Bloom, its amazing creator, uh, did us uh, such an honor this week. She did us a solid. You might she say. did us a solid uh, by 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 sh- giving a shout out to to our beloved Tablet Magazine, and not just this to Tablet Magazine's Twitter feed, to our Twitter feed, edited by our very own Alyssa Goldstein. Uh, Rachel Bloom, and 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 not only that, but having Patty Lupone as a rabbi I know. speak the line. Why is everyone here miserable? Uh, I don't know. Maybe because Jewish people's DNA is literally imprinted with our past trauma. It's something called epigenetics. Look it up. Hey, don't be condescending. You think you're the only person who reads Tablet Magazine on Twitter? Please watch Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> Please watch. Start with this week's episode and then work all the way back to season one. It's fantastic. Rachel Bloom, we love you so much. Please come on our show. Please write a song for us. Please mention Tablet in every single episode. And while I'm happy for Alyssa, while I'm happy for Alyssa Goldstein, I'm a little jealous. I mean, she essentially got a Patty Lupone shout out. That's yeah. that's that's right. I'm so, Rachel, no one listens to Unorthodox in, in your world, really. <laughs> Where's our shout out? Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Lila Kagadin. I don't know if I said that right, but I heard her give an amazing speech at the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance Conference last weekend. Kosher slaughtering by your mother. Yeah, that's right. I said your mother. 
On Twitter, we're at TabletMag. I'm at MarkOp1. Liel is at Liel. Stephanie is at Stuffism. Stephanie is also on Instagram at Sputnik. Our music is by Golem. We record in Argo Studios, which has auto-tuned us to give us perfect pitch. And we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs>